Hello, you are listening to a podcast version of a recent message from Freedom Church's Sunday service. Freedom Church is a brand new church plant in Buckeye, Arizona. We meet weekly at Odyssey Preparatory Academy on Apache Road for services every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. If you're ever in the area, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. My name is Andrew Cabani, and I'm the lead pastor of Freedom Church, and I just wanted to personally thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our podcasts If you have a prayer request or want to make a decision for Christ after listening to our podcast, please, please, please contact us via the prayer request page on our website, freedomchurchaz.com. Enjoy and God bless. Good morning. I knew I needed to bend over to put my water on the ground. I almost put the microphone there. Kept the water, put the microphone down. That worked well. Good morning. Thank you, Cody, for worship. Um, one thing I've always known in all my life of ministry is that I'm not the words guy. I should not be the words guy. I get too much into worship, and that's why the words were all messed up. So sorry about that. Today, if I have to fill in, like, I'm going to be like, yeah, oh, God, I should, I should push the next slide. Sorry. So sorry, I'm not the words guy, but I can fill in in a pinch. Uh, all right, Billy Shakespeare. Billy Shakespeare famously wrote, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn, my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. You remember the story of Romeo and Juliet, two families, sworn enemies, and two members of that family trying to find love through it. The classic love story in a lot of and at the very least, you, uh, you can remember creepy Leo DiCaprio, like, hanging out on the side of the balcony, like, hiding, so she doesn't know that he's there. And he responds to her saying, shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this? And then listening to Claire Danes as Juliet go on to say, <clears throat> I've been practicing this this week, "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague?' It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, O be some other name belonging to a man. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet and seen. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I really do feel like my stage acting career didn't get enough of a chance. Um, With respect to Juliet and Billy Shakespeare and I guess Claire Danes, um, naming things is actually actually really important. I'm calling today's message, what's in a name? What's in a name? Psychology will tell you that it's very important. It is a very important step in the development of a child when, they be able, when they're able to get to the point where they can start naming things, when they can start giving a name to different things. Research, uh, naming something makes it real to you. Um, And research tells us that naming something allows us to identify, symbolize, refer, describe, simplify, organize. There's some uh, really interesting articles, if you you are so inclined to do some some light reading, about the um, decisions that Apple, Amazon, Microsoft made to give their artificial intelligence, their AI, a name and, like, compare that to say, Google, who decided that when you want to wake their machine up, you say, hey, Google, and they do whatever they want, as opposed to Siri or Alexa or Cortana, which is Microsoft's version, but it hasn't really picked up, I don't think. Conversations about how giving an actual name to the AI allows the person to generate more of a relationship with that AI, which I've seen all of those movies, and I know that they all end badly, but, you know, here we are. Um, 
names, um, names and labels sort of go hand in hand. For the purpose of our message today, I'm going to talk about names as in the name that you are given at your birth, a name that you really don't have any control over. It's always a conversation in our family, the names that people were almost named. Like uh, <laughs> uh, my little sister had the name Ratclaw waiting for her um, had she been a, a boy. That was, that was out there. Uh, <laughs> Cody has his mom to thank for not being named Wolfgang. Um, no offense to any Wolfgangs uh, out there. Uh, I'm not going to say no offense to any rat claws out there because, number one, I don't think they exist. But if they do, they can take offense because they know their parents were crazy. But we're just going to go there. Um, but even though you don't have any control over your name, it still has meaning. My full name is Andrew William Ahmed Kabani. I have four names, two middle names. That was always a problem in school for some reason. Uh, both of my middle names are the first names of both of my grandfathers, my mom's dad, my dad's dad. And uh, one, a New York Italian, and one, an Arab from Syria, uh, representing in my parents one American and one immigrant, one backsliding Catholic and one backsliding Muslim who came together and produced me, a Christian pastor. So that's what you get when you throw all that together. Um, and even though I had no choice in the, uh, in the name that I had, uh, it represents for me a very diverse family background and a scope for which I see the world and continue to see the world all the time. So it's, it's important for me. It's a legacy behind my name. And we all sort of probably have similar stories in that end. So that's names. Again, for the purpose of this message, uh, I'm going to consider labels, things that we choose that in one way or another, we choose them, we call ourselves these things. This can be anything like that we label ourselves based on an achievement in life. We achieve the label of father when we are able to create life. We achieve the label of dad when we're able to nurture that life. Um, we achieve the label of doctor when we go through school, the school that's needed to be a doctor. And it can be labels that we choose to give ourselves, stuff like, uh, stuff like nicknames. I never had a nickname that really got off the ground all that much. Um, I was just going to make a joke. Heidi calls me some mean things sometimes, but I'm not going to pull that out. That, there's no reason for you to get into our bedroom. Um, but uh, never got that nickname off the ground other than dad or hey. Um, that's really all I get other than Andrew around, uh, around my house. Um, but nicknames or fandoms that we choose, or in the case specifically for our message today, the label we give ourselves when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. With that, will you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11 or your devices? And if you don't have a Bible or a device, there should be some there. And the rows will also have them on the screens here for you. Today's message is a two-parter. Part one, we'll talk about labels. And part two, we'll talk about names. So you get the the good two-part message uh, this morning. So part, part one, let's talk about labels. In reverence for the word of God, will you stand with me this morning as we read Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, 
preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. You may be seated. So this story is sort of the culmination of all of the stories that we've been talking about to this point. There's this seminal event where Stephen is the first martyr in the history of the Christian church. And um, as a result, he is, uh, the, the people feel persecuted. And persecution just sort of starts to run amok amongst the early church. And so they scatter throughout all the regions of uh, Judea and Samaria and all over this area of the world. And then we also, what we just read about last week was that Peter had finally sort of broken down that wall that was built up where Jesus said, hey, go be my witnesses to the whole world. And those good Jewish boys who heard that to them, they, they, what they heard was, go be his witnesses to the whole world of other Jews and not Gentiles, only to their kind of people. And so uh, Peter had just broken down that wall and said, hey, it's time. The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles the same way it falls on the Jews. And as I say every week, all good Gentiles say, amen, thank you, Jesus, that's our way to heaven. And so um, that, with that all happening, you have this persecution that has people going places. You have this wall being broken down that Gentiles are able to hear about Jesus and accept him and be saved. And so now you have the coming together of this multi-ethnic, thriving church in Antioch. Antioch was a city that was 300 miles north of Jerusalem and about 20 miles inland uh, from the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch was widely regarded as the third greatest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome itself and Alexandria. This was the third greatest city. This was a city that housed almost a half a million people at this time, which was a lot for cities in ancient times. It was known for business, commerce, sophistication, culture, and of course immorality um, there as well. And so that's what's happening. And, and, and Antioch really becomes, excuse me, home base for the new Christian, and ch- Christian church that includes both Jew and Gentile. So the leaders in Jerusalem hear what's happening in Antioch and they send Barnabas out to check it out, see what's going on. And in verse 23, it says, When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Honestly, that is exactly the way that you would hope that when people come and be around people who are gathering in the name of Jesus, if there was an outsider to come into that group, you would hope that they would see the same exact thing that that Barnabas saw. It says, he came and he saw the grace of God. You would hope that the, the, the feeling that you're giving off when you come together in the name of Jesus is that you are emulating the grace of God. Not like a self-seeking bunch of people just looking to put like a show on to 
but you want to see you want to see a tangible tactile feeling of the grace of God whenever you get amongst believers. Barnabas looks around and says, man, you guys are really doing good here, but you know who could make a great difference here? That guy Saul that the last time we heard about him was a couple of weeks ago. They sent him off to Tarsus because he was persecuting the church first, and then Jesus got a hold of him on the road to Damascus and asked him to stop persecuting me, and he went blind, and then he went into Damascus, and God, Jesus sent a disciple to him to lay hands on him and to pray for him, and scales fell from his eyes. And from that moment on, he started preaching the name of Jesus Christ, even though before he was dragging people out of their houses and throwing them in jail, killing them, persecuting them, because uh, he was so zealous uh, for the old ways and not able to see Jesus through all of what he was doing. And so that guy, the church didn't know what to do with him. Like they, he showed up in Jerusalem, like, hey, I'm Saul, and to them it was like, hey, uh, Hitler here, um, reporting for duty, what can I do to help the Jews now? Like, that was essentially the case that they were having there, and the church was like, we're real happy for you, brother, um, but you scare everybody. Like, everybody was scared of you, and we don't really know what to do with you. So they sent him off to Tarsus, and Saul, since the last time we saw him in the book of Acts, it's been about 8 to 12 years in there where Saul's just been hanging out in Tarsus. And he's been learning, he's been studying, he's been waiting for God to point him in the direction for his ministry. And Barnabas, who was always sort of a cheerleader, was always the one who was like, I can see God's changing in your life, Saul. When he goes to Antioch and he sees this moving, this multi-ethnical, the Jews and the Gentiles all together, he says, you know who can make a difference here? My guy, Saul. So he travels another 100 miles north back to Tarsus and brings Saul back to be a part of this. And we're going to see Saul's ministry just explode from here on out. They returned together, and verse 26 tells us that they came and they taught them. And as we're here in the beginning stages and what truly now represents the Christian church, being that it includes both Jew and Gentile, we see the perfect order of how you should approach reaching people for Christ. The three E's, how to, how to, how to reach Everyone, emphasis on the E, it's evangelism, encouragement, and education. Verse 20 tells us that the unnamed disciples started by preaching to the Gentiles, those guys in Cyrus and Kyrene. Why C-Y for Cyrus is Cy, and why C-Y for Kyrene is Kai. I have, I got nothing there, um, but Cyrus and Kyrene, um, these guys are just unnamed disciples. They're just, just they're, they're not famous in any way, but they break down that wall just like Peter did, the most famous of the disciples, and uh, break down that wall, and they start preaching to the Gentiles, and a moving happens there, and the, and the Scripture says that they preached to the Gentiles. They evangelized to the, the Gentiles. They explained to them that everlasting life in his name is available, and they gave them the opportunity to accept the free gift of salvation. The first step in reaching people for Christ is to tell them that, hey, he's in the lifeboat and he can pull you into. That, that there is salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the first way to reach people for Christ. Then you move on, and verse 23 tells us that when Barnabas got there, when he finally got there as like a representative of the, you know, the, the main disciples, he exhorted them. He encouraged them for the work that they were doing was good. It's important to stay encouraged in your walk with Jesus. 
Not every day in your walk with Jesus is going to be exciting. Not every day in your walk with Jesus are you going to be able to truly like feel the calling or really see what God's doing or, or sort of understand where you're at on your road uh, with God. Not every day is going to feel exciting or stuff's going to be happening. A lot of days are going to be more monotonous. You're going to be trying to put in good habits. You're going to be trying to raise your family in such a way. You're going to be trying to be a good example at work. And that becomes sort of a continual cycle. And you have to try to plug into that. And sometimes as you're doing that continuous cycle, you lose encouragement from time to time. It's hard to stay completely focused. And encouragement is such an important thing in the lifespan of a believer for an, an older, wiser, or more seasoned uh, member of the faith to come in or a leader to come in and say, you're doing a good job. You really are. God loves you. And man, you guys are doing a great work. Don't stop. Don't give up. That is so, so, so important in the life of a believer. And finally, verse 26 tells us that when Saul and Barnabas came back to the church, they began teaching them the ways of God, giving them an education on who Jesus really is and how to put things in place in your life to follow him forever. That's what we do every week. That's what my aim is every week as we open up the scriptures together is to teach the word of God, to be able to take things home every single week. Now, hopefully there's some evangelism in there and hopefully there's some encouragement in there, but we're also trying to teach, teach things that we can apply to our lives that while we're kind of doing the, the monotonous things of getting through this life and getting to the next checkpoint and all those things, that we can put little things into our lives to allow us to follow God and to really hear from him on a day-to-day basis. This all culminates in verse 26 when it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first time that the, uh, the church followers of Jesus are given the label of Christian. To this point, followers of Jesus have been called disciples in chapter 1 of Acts, believers and witnesses in chapter 5, Brothers in chapter 6, followers of the way and saints in chapter 9. Later in Acts chapter 24, they'll be called Nazarenes. But here, they are given the label of Christian. The suffix I-A-N, meaning in party, in the party of, the party of Jesus. Jesus-ites, or little Jesuses. Additionally, the suffix was used at this time. The suffix I-A-N was a lot of times used as a military term. You would add the term I-A-N to the end of your label to say who you belong to in terms of the military. Last week, we talked about Cornelius the centurion, as in he was under the authority of the Roman century. So in a way, the label of Christian means that you are soldiers under the authority of Christ. I like to think about it that way. Notice the wording of the scripture. It says that they were first called Christians. First called Christians. That really speaks of the order in which we should rank the labels that we give ourselves. You know, on uh, I like to I like to do this on my own, like a uh, little bio on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And you say, "Who are you?" Well. I'm very first, the, the highest ranking of the order of the label that I give myself at, on top of everything else, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I am first called a Christian. Then I'm a husband. Then I'm a father. Then I'm a Pats fan. 
then I'm a Suns fan, all, the, all that kind of way down. Probably Suns above Pats, but you know, it depends on what season it is, I guess. Um, but you know, it all, it all makes its way down. At the very first label that we should give ourselves as followers of Jesus should be as a Christian. It's really important for us to see ourselves and our per- personal relationship with Jesus. However, as we talked about, the names and labels that we give ourselves are more than just sort of how we personalize those labels, how we see each other. When we give ourselves the label as, as Christian, that also allows us to belong to a group. And it's really important for Christians to know that other Christians exist. You know, just like coming in here and and if we if we're if we don't get all get here in time, the first couple people come in, and you're like, there's there's no there's nobody here. And um, I, I want I want to be here and, and I, I want to hear from God, but if nobody else is here, like there's something weird going on. Like you just you just feel that way. And whether that's right or wrong, whatever it is, but when you just when there's not other people around, you're just like, hmm, I don't, uh, you, you feel that way. And to know that there are other believers, there are other Christians, there are other followers of Jesus that are out there, that are encouraging you, that are running the same race that you are, it's encouraging to one another to be able to label each other in that way so that you can come together and you can feel that support. That is very important. However, I will say that I feel like more than many, maybe any other time in my life, I can't speak to, you know, generations past, I wasn't there. This is more of a, a vibe thing than a than I don't have like statistics to back this up. This is just more of a vibe thing in my life. More than any other time in my life, I see the word Christian being weaponized um, and being looked at as sort of a negative thing or giving a negative connotation. People calling Christians, those Christians do X, and then lumping the whole group in to more than likely what is probably a few bad, loud apples. And so I understand, and even as a pastor, I notice, you notice little things. Like when, you, when you've been doing ministry for as long as I have, when you have listened to as many people give their messages for as long as I have, and you see so many different types of pastors give their messages, you notice little things. Like you notice there are some pastors who just don't say Christian anymore. They say something like Jesus follower or follower of Jesus. And I'm probably somebody who's done that myself. Because when you say the word Christian, all of a sudden it's Christian nationalist, Christian this, Christian that. That you, it, you think of headlines where you see the word Christian and you put all that stuff in. And I'm not here to come against any of that kind of stuff. Again, I've talked about when, when these like political hot topics come up. If you're waiting for me to say, thus says the Lord about Christian nationalists, you are in the wrong church. This ain't, this ain't, we ain't doing that here. We're talking about the Bible and what Jesus says. I don't condemn anybody for anything. Let's talk about the word of God. I'll let the Holy Spirit do all that condemning. But uh, the point that I'm trying to make, what, I'm, what, I'm, what point am I trying to make? I understand that people feel that way, that they want to maybe shy away from the word Christian. But we hear it here in the Bible. There's sometimes, oh, well, you don't see Christian a lot in the Bible. But right here, it says in verse 26, it was here that they called themselves Christians. And I would just take you back, if you're in a point in your life where you may be shying away from that, I would take you back to right here, and I would take you back to what that meant to them right there. 
that as all of the craziness was happening in their world, and we can relate to a world that feels like craziness is happening in our world, that as all of that stuff was happening, they got together and they broke down every wall. They stopped thinking about what was, what, what was the comfortable thing to do or what, their, what even their parents had done or their parents' parents. We're going to talk about legacy here in a second. And they broke down that wall. They said, we're not just going to teach Jesus to, to the people who look exactly like us, to the people that we're comfortable with. We're going to teach Jesus to the people who look exactly the opposite of us. We're going to teach Jesus to the people who, didn't know, who don't know what Noah's ark is, that don't know who Moses is. They wouldn't know him from Daniel, and they don't know who Daniel is. We're going to teach Jesus to all of these people, whether they look exactly like us, whether they make the same amount of money as us, whether they have the same skin color as us, the same ethnicity as us, they speak the same language. We are going to preach the name of Jesus to them. And as a result, they all came together, and they were called Christians. And I want you to think about what that group was going through and the pride that they had to take to say, we're a part of this, followers of Jesus Christ. And if we ever want to get back to that, we have to emulate those same exact things. All right, part two. Part two is Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read it for you. I have it on the screen. You don't have to stand up. It's a little bit of a longer message. But if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to start reading Acts chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to talk about names here as we uh, finish things up. It says, about that time, about the time as this church in Antioch was happening, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to, to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on the very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Like the, the it says right here, uh, he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow, follow me. And the King James says, gird yourself. We need more gird yourselves in modern translation. Gird yourselves. We got to go. And he did so. And he said to him, and he went out and they followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by an angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When he had possessed the first and the second, when he had passed, excuse me, the first and the second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to him, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said to them, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day had come, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, he did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. 
Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king Chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, This voice of God, not of a man only. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So we have a king named Herod, who we'll talk about Herod here in just a second when we talk about names, that name Herod. But to start off, what we know that Herod did is that he ordered the execution of James. Now this James is the brother of John, fellow son of thunder. He was one of the original 12, excuse me, apostles. And he kills James, and then he arrests Peter and shackles him to four guards. And what happens next is a beautiful lesson in the power of prayer. The power of prayer. First, and I have it here for the overhead, prayer is the solution to our Challenges. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. As in, here's the problem, the solution was prayer. That there was there was a there was prayer that was there to provide a solution. And that honestly, that might be hokey to some of you. That might be eye-rolly to some of you to say that prayer was the solution to him being arrested. And uh, I'll be honest, when I know that there are far too many times in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church, in the culture that we've come up with in church, where people will come to you and they will talk about a challenge that they're having. And instead of us intervening, it's, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you. And that's just almost like a, it's, being, it's used as like an opportunity to just kind of, okay, well, I don't, you're making me uncomfortable, so I'm just going to say something so we can move on to the next thing. And sometimes we don't even pray. Sometimes we do, which is good. But sometimes we don't even pray. Or it's been used as an opportunity to say, I could sort of step in and actually help in that problem, but I'll just sort of take the easy way out and just say that I'm going to pray. And that leads to, when I say prayer is the solution to our challenges, that leads many people to be like, yeah, sure. Sure. But look at our text here. From the context of this scripture, we are led to believe that the entirety of the Christian church was all together praying for one specific thing. Can you imagine what would happen if the entirety of the Christian church in 2022 came together, broke down all those walls, and all prayed for the exact same thing? Can you imagine what that would look like? It reminds me of what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, powerful scriptures when it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and what? Pray. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This is what the Christian church is doing as a whole. They are praying for this problem that they have that Peter has been thrown in prison and God hears and God heals. And God comes down and makes a difference. Prayer is that 
initiator in a lot of cases. It starts with prayer, and that leads to God being able to, like, stir up people to come in and make a difference and be his hands and feet in that need. Second, prayer requires earnestness. Scripture says, but earnest prayer was being given by the church. The King James says, prayer that was done without ceasing. In the Greek, it's the word ektenes, which means earnest or assiduously. They prayed assiduously, which is a wonderful word. Assiduously means with great care and perseverance. That's how they pray. It means they truly prayed from their heart and they did it continuously. They didn't stop. Let me just give you a little like life hack when it comes to praying. Uh, don't be fake when you're praying. Don't, don't just say uh, absent-minded words and just sort of say the words because you feel like you have to say the words and you've gotten comfortable saying the same words because God sees right through that. That's not earnest prayer. We ask our kids to, uh, to pray before we eat a meal. We ask our kids to pray uh, before bedtime. We pray together. And my son is the biggest, uh, the biggest captive of this. He'll just say the words that he knows he's gotten kudos for in the past. So he'll say the exact same words, and he'll say them as fast as he can so he can get to his french fries. Like, that's, that's how he rolls. And we have to stop him, and we have to say, hey, look, that's, that's not prayer that God honors. We have to go. We're praying from our heart. We're praying, and we are legitimately thankful for the blessings that God has given us. Start earnestly praying. Start earnestly praying. Prayer, number three, will open doors. Prayer will open doors. Verse 10 tells us that after the angel came and got Peter, and after they got through the first two guards who were holding him, shackles had fallen off. There were two more guards who were guarding the door. Don't know what happened to those guys. They got past them. And then they finally got to... The iron gate, this, this gate that probably seemed menacing, seemed like it was impossible. It says when they came to the gate, to the iron gate leading to the city, it opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. This had nothing to do with Peter or the angel. This had everything to do with the earnest prayers and that they were being answered. It begs the question, what's the iron gate in your life as you sit here today? that final obstacle that you know that you have to get through so that you can truly live that life that you know that God has called you to. Start earnestly praying. Tell others to join in with you. Watch God open that gate on its own accord. Finally, this is my favorite lesson. My favorite lesson. Big prayer does not require big faith. When Peter escapes, he goes to meet up with, uh, at the it says, at the house of John called Mark. This is the same Mark who writes the Gospel of Mark. This is a Mark that will be a character in the book of Acts as we continue to go here. But his mom's house was known to be the house where the church hung out. I'd love to be known. I, want, I would love to be the known as the house where the church hung out, you know. Uh, what a great label to get if you're John Mark's mother. So he goes to her house, and he goes and he knocks, and this poor girl named Rhoda, she sees and she hears the voice of Peter, and she recognizes it, and she gets so excited that she doesn't go and open the door. My kids have done this from time to time. They'll say, hey, so I, 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 just, I don't know who's here. I'll, let me go get my dad. And, and you just kind of do that, and that's kind of what Rhoda's doing. Like, I know you're here. I know who you are, but I'm not going to let you in. I'm going to go tell the church, hey. And so she goes to them, and says, hey, um, you know that guy 
that we're praying about, um, you know that guy that we're praying for God to, to free him and to bring him here? Um, he's been freed and, and he's here. <laughs> um, and, and their response to her, verse 15, you're out of your mind. That's the response from the group to poor Rhoda. These people were praying for something that in their honest heart of hearts, they didn't actually think was possible for God. And their response here shows that, that they weren't praying with this big amount of faith um, for God to do this big thing, but God did it anyways, and I love it. Because guess what? I don't always have big faith. Sometimes all I have is a little bit of faith to give. Sometimes the world has sort of run me ragged and I, I want to go to Jesus and I'm going to fall on my knees and I'm going to give it to him because I got nothing else to do. I can't do anything else but fall on my knees and pray. But I don't have a whole lot of faith. I just have a little bit of faith. I have faith like a mustard seed. And you know what Jesus' response to that is? Matthew 17, 20. That's enough faith where if you say to this mountain, move from here to there, it will be moved. That's enough faith where if you tell me that you need me to come into your life and open up that iron gate that's keeping you from being the man or woman that I've called you to do, I'll open it on your own accord. If that's enough faith where if you need me to come in and open up the shackles to get you away from that situation of people trying to hurt and destroy you, I'll come in and do it. That's enough faith where if you need me to reignite, reunite you with the people that you love to make relationships whole, stuff that has been broken down, that's just enough faith where I can come in and I can do it. You give me what you got, and I'll do the rest, is what God says. Praise God for faith like a mustard seed. It's so, it's so within our Savior's personality to say, you just give me a mustard seed worth of faith, and I'll take care of the rest. Because that's, that's the story of Jesus in a nutshell. Jesus did 99% of the work to, to take care of our eternity on the cross. And we just have to do that little 1% of putting our faith in him, believing on him and putting our faith in him for salvation. That's just Jesus' personality in a nutshell. All right, let's talk a little bit about the name of specifically our antagonist here, Herod. The Bible is full of Herods. It's easy to get them mixed up. It's easy to not know who we're talking about here. So let's break this down just a little bit. If you're taking notes, this is a great part to take notes on. The person that we're talking about here, this Herod, is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod I, Herod the Great, who was the Herod spoken of in the Gospels who reigned at the time of Jesus' birth. This is the same man who ordered the death of infants for fear of the Messiah, as we learn about in Matthew chapter 2. Real peach of a guy, who Grandpa Herod was. Herod the Great, again, still speaking of Grandpa, not our Herod here this morning. Herod the Great had ten wives, one of which, this is where it gets a little confusing, so I'm trying to make sure I say this right. One of which, whose name was Miriam. This was one of Herod the Great's ten wives. Her name was was Miriam, and they had a son, and his name was Aristopolis, easy to say, Aristopolis. Herod the Great, Herod the First, ordered the death of both Miriam and Aristopolis. 
uh, Herod was, had a bunch of sons, and he was constantly killing those sons. And this Herod the Great, there was a saying at this time that it was better to be Herod's pet than it was to be his son because he treated his pets better than he treated his sons. This was a guy who was constantly looking over his shoulder. He was constantly sort of wigging out, constantly neurotic, always thinking that somebody was coming up against him. And so he thought his wife, one of his wives, Miriam, and one of his sons, Aristopolis, were trying to get together to, to overthrow him, to, to threaten his position. So he had them killed. But before Aristopolis was killed, before the paranoia took over Herod, before that happened, Aristopolis had a son. And that is Herod Agrippa, who we are speaking of today. So, <clears throat> one more sort of key to this sort of history and what we know. One more note. Miriam, Herod Agrippa's grandmother, mother of Aristopolis, was a direct descendant of the Maccabees. Now, if you don't know your Jewish history, I don't blame you, but just know this was a really important family in Jewish history. This meant that her, his grandmother, our Herod, Herod Agrippa I, his grandmother was fully Jewish, married to a Roman. So this made Herod Agrippa half Jew, quarter Jew, however, I don't know, 23 and me, we'll figure out exactly what he is. But, you know, he's got a lot of Jewish in him. And that was a lot, what, what history tells us about our Herod, Herod Agrippa I, is that he was fascinated with the Jewish people. And that he was, because of his grandmother's lineage with the Jewish people, constantly trying to get the acceptance of the Jewish people. And if you've been with us for a few weeks, or again, you know anything about the Jews themselves, and why it was such a big deal that they broke down that wall for the Gentiles, Jews aren't always keen on giving that acceptance to people who aren't full-blood Jews. That just was never a thing for the Jewish people. And so it was Agrippa lived his life constantly sort of on this rat race of trying to get the approval of these people and never actually accomplishing that. Trying to do things that would please the people, like killing James, like arresting Peter, trying to get the approval of the Jewish people, but never actually getting those things. I'm so far off my notes here. I want to make sure I have everything here. Um, our story tells us that when Agrippa finds out that Peter has been freed, he kills his guards. And then in a rage, he goes to this small town, still sort of breathing fire. This is now Agrippa's story, not, not Herod the first, not Herod the great story. This is Agrippa's story where he, he is upset that Peter's gone. He kills the centuries that were guarding him. And then he goes to this small town, which scripture tells us this small town, like they depended on the king to get their food. So when he comes in there, the people are all there and they're just saying, oh, you're the best. I know you're in a bad mood, Agrippa, but you're the best. You, you don't even speak like a man. You speak like a God. Like you, people should really listen to you. You're the best. And and Agrippa's starting to feel a little bit better. He puts on his good robes, and he gets in, into the throne, and he says, tell me more about how I'm a god and not a man. And then the Bible, what we just read, tells us that he was struck down in that moment and eaten by worms. So that's how you're a god. That, that's, that's, that's how you're rolling here, Agrippa. Um, Cody, you can start to make your way up here. We're going to close this down. In many ways, Agrippa's story is both 
is one that shows that you can get what's coming to you. <laughs> That's a, it's a story that tells us that lesson. If we read the life of Agrippa, um, we, we, we can see, hey, you know, don't get too full of yourself because one moment you'll be sitting on a throne, the next minute worms are eating you. That's, there's, there's a story, there's a lesson to learn there. But in a lot of ways, it's also sort of sad. His, his story is, is sort of sad. That he's a man constantly trying to live up to his name. He has generations of family, and unfortunately, we see the same cycles of paranoia and not feeling comfortable in your own skin and, and not, not always looking for something from this world that, that you're never actually getting. And we see cycles of that happening. And, and unfortunately, by the time it gets to Agrippa, that cycle just goes again for him. We see it with Grandpa, uh, Grandpa Herod. We see it, Aristopolis doesn't get a chance to because he's taken off the map. And then we see that repeated again for Herod Agrippa. And it's, it's sort of sad when you think of it that way. I think many of us can find ourselves in that same position. That whether we are named after them or not, we may be repeating the same patterns that we have seen our family go through in times before. That either that's a pattern that involves, you know, no Jesus at all, just away from the church and kind of doing their own thing and getting into bad things and trying to be good people, but ultimately just continuing to a lot of these same things, never feeling comfortable in our own skin, always trying to reach out and find something in this world that never tastes right, doesn't satisfy the soul. Or even for some of us who grew up in churches, we have families that, that are around churches all the time. And we know the name of Jesus. We know a lot of these stories, but we also see that cyclical effect there. That sometimes we're going to church and things are good and everybody's really close and we're praying together as a family and then sometimes things get tough and we fall away. We stop going to church. We stop connecting. We stop praying. And you can see the, 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 the tough stuff that happens or bad things happen within a church. And then we see ourselves sort of repeating that cycle, trying to, I don't know, live up to the name. And I will tell you that that's not what Jesus wants for us. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. We talked about that last week. How about we let that family toxic cycle go ahead and stop with us? How about we change course for our family and instead of a toxic cycle that revolves around the world, we make a stand for not only ourselves, but the generations to come and say, we're not gonna have a toxic cycle that revolves around the world. We're gonna have a life-giving, soul-cleansing cycle that revolves around Jesus Christ. And that's a decision that we all have to make, to not just allow our name to be a self-fulfilling prophecy in our life, not to just let our past be a self-fulfilling prophecy about what's next. It's to stand in this moment and say, I hear from you, Jesus, and I see what you're doing, and I see that your love breaks down all the barriers and all the preconceived notions of what I'm, I think it meant to be a Christian. You break down in your word. You say, it's not about that. It's about showing the love of Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus to go from sea to shining sea, from nation to nation, to break down all those walls. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I'm going to stop the cycle that I've seen in my life of we try for a little bit and then we fall away and it's just this, this rocky roller coaster. We're going to stop it right now. We're going to stop those cycles. We're going to make our name mean something else. That's an option that we always have to say, no, nah, it stops with me. 
So as we close today, we're going to open up the altars. We give time. Cody's going to play a little bit. We're not going to have the words on the screen. It's going to be real, real intimate in this moment. I would really encourage you to stand with me. You can stand right now. And to take some time and think about your own life and the things that, that God is working on in you and the cycles that you may be even unknowingly repeating in your own life, God will bring those to memory to pray through them. And if you want to pray with somebody, I'll be down here to do just that. Altars are open if you want to pray by yourself. I just want to give some time to let the Spirit move and to, to, to concentrate on the word that God has given us this morning. Father God, Lord, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to come into your house to hear from your word. Father, I ask Holy Spirit that despite the words that I may have said, will you continue to teach your people this morning? Will you reach down into their lives, into their hearts, and let them hear from you this morning? And Father, if there's anybody here hearing my voice that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that Father, maybe generations before or even they saw a bad, a bad view of what a Christian looks like in their life, Father, and they don't know what I'm talking about here, where it's this Christian that breaks down all borders, that doesn't see skin color, that doesn't see uh, their lot in life, that's just about giving life and life more abundantly, everlasting life, a Savior who loved his people so much that he said, I'll take on all of your sin and all of your shame, and I'll get on that cross, and I'll die for you, and then I'll defeat death three days later. That's what it means to be a Christian. And maybe this is the first time they're hearing it. Father, I ask that you speak to them this morning, that today be their day of salvation. Give them the encouragement to reach out to you, ask you into their heart, Father. Whatever the need is, Lord, we open up this altar time for you. In Jesus' name.